Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome back to the Restoring Darkness podcast. I have a very exciting show today. Um, I am joined by Jill Johnson, Dr. Kimberly Arcond, and Stephen Loring. Jill Johnson is the exhibit developer and project manager at the Office of Exhibits at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. She's worked there since 1979, 44 years. Seven of those were spent with the Marine Systems Laboratory at the museum. She has a bachelor's degree in marine science from Southampton College slash Long Island University. She had the work opportunity to work on many exhibitions, permanent and temporary. Some of the highlights have been the Sant Ocean Hall that opened in 2008, renovation of the famous African elephant display twice. The temporary exhibition currently on display is Objects of Wonder from the collections of the National Museum of Natural History, highlighting fabulous objects from our museums, the museum's vast collections from the seven research departments and the newly opened temporary exhibit, which we're going to talk about today called Lights Out, Recovering Our Night Sky. I think that's such an interesting name and we're going to unpack it a little bit more. I'm also joined by Stephen Loring. Stephen was born and brought up in Concord, Massachusetts. Like earlier Concordians, Henry Thoreau comes to mind. He spent a disproportionate time in the neighboring woods and rivers, often in the company of one or another pet raccoons. Proclivity at finding things and the drift of his thoughts and imagination in a decidedly antiquarian bent led him eventually to become an archaeologist. He attended Goddard College in Vermont and later the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, where he, he once got his PhD in. He taught anthropology and northern studies at Middlebury College and the University of South Carolina prior to accepting a job with the Smithsonian's Arctic Studies Center in 1992. He has conducted archaeological and ethno-historical fieldwork, much in, con in conjunction with Native communities. Throughout New England, um, Alaska, and Eastern Canada, almost continuously since 1975. Wow. Dr. Kimberly Arcand is a leading expert in, this is really cool, astronomy, astronomy visualization and has been a pioneer in 3D imaging, printing, and extended reality applications with astrophysics data. She has worked for NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory since 1998. Her current research includes sonification of spatial data, machine learning as applied to image processing, and other intersections of emerging technology and astrophysics. Welcome Stephen, Jill, and Kimberly to the Restoring Darkness podcast. Thanks. I'm, I'm going to start uh, with Jill and I'm going to ask you, I really like the name of your of your exhibit because it's a call to action as well as a name. Lights out, recovering our night sky. Tell us a little bit about the exhibit and why you chose that name. The exhibit is focusing on the loss of the night sky due to light pollution. And so there are things that we can do pretty simple things that we can do to recover our view of the night sky. And when we initially uh, did some testing with visitors to just to just get an idea of this topic, what they thought about it, um, do some title testing, this resonated the most mm. with people who 
really had not had an experience with a dark sky site. And so we thought, you know, because they haven't seen that and they're understanding that we might need to recover the loss of the night sky because they're not, they're not perceiving it. They're not seeing it maybe in their neighborhood. Maybe they haven't had the opportunity. Um, but it also has that active sense of it recover and mm -hmm. that brings the, the solution side of it. The, the average American has, has never seen the Milky Way, I would bet. I don't know that to be the case, but I, I would bet that, that they've never seen the Milky Way. As a Canadian, I've, uh, most of our country is actually a, a dark sky reserve if you go 100 kilometers or miles north or whatever it is. Um, Stephen, you know, in Western culture, we have this idea of the night being bad or, you know, Christ being the light of the world, or all this sort of stuff is embedded deeply into, into Western culture. Can we learn anything from our First Nations and Native communities about the value of the night sky? Well, of course we can, if we just open our eyes and ears. We, um, we, we felt very strongly, in, in thinking about this exhibit, in, in the planning stage, it was such a, a, a good fix for the Natural History Museum you know, because we're, the problem with light pollution affects all life on Earth, you know, from plants and animals and insects. And, and then, of course, it resonates strongly with human beings. And we, in, in thinking about this exhibit and putting it together, we just, we realize that the, the night sky is part of humanity's common heritage. It's something that mm -hmm. all people for all times have shared. And so... In, in, in my involvement with the position was was just trying to broaden out that perspective of um, of, the, of the, the fact that different people all over the world you know have related to the night sky as a source of inspiration and wonder and 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 figuring out you know where we are who we are what it is to be a human being what it is to be life on earth um, and 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 that was part of our premise we didn't want it to be um, you know, dominated by a Western perspective as much as as sharing this this idea that that uh, people all over the world have had an intimate experience, and f I spent a good portion of my professional career in Canada uh, in the Canadian Arctic and uh, subarctic area. I spent a lot of time out in the country um, with uh, Indigenous, uh, uh, Indian, and and First Nations and Inuit peoples, uh, and 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 just. To, to go out from the camp in the nighttime, I argue it's never dark. You know, the brilliance of the stars mm. is enough to uh, mm -hmm. to see you well. So, so one of the things we also were exploring this whole like, what does it mean to be dark, and 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 how much light is enough light? You know, it, it's interesting because I find that, and I and, and I love the work the people at the IDA do, the International Dark Skies Association, but I find the term dark skies a little bit confusing at times for people and that's why you know our board of directors here insisted on restoring darkness and preserving night as the language we're going to use in the from the lighting industry perspective of the distributors that i represent um to discuss the issue so that it becomes clearer for people but you know the spiritual aspect of it um is so important or the human aspect of it kimberly how did you incorporate that into your design in, in the in the 3d imaging and the astronomy visualization to kind of pass along what what we're all missing well 
I mean, depending on your perspective, you could say that the universe either belongs to everyone or belongs to no one, right? Are you glass half full, glass empty kind of person? Mm -hmm. um, but the idea stands, right? We should all have access to something that people that have come before us have all had access to for a very long time. And for me, someone who has kind of like this front row seat in the cathedral of the universe, just through the telescopes that I get to use, I feel like I have this very lucky sense of all of that beyond us. And, you know, it keeps me endlessly humble, of course, but also mm. endlessly in awe. And, and to be able to have even just a tiny part of that by just being able to look up through your night sky, wherever you might be every day, I think is, is really important. So, yeah, we should all be able to just look up and enjoy it. Have you been able to, uh, have the observers of your exhibit, have they, have they come out sort of with their minds blown, so to speak, or like really being able to visualize the, the stars? Well, Jill, I don't know if you have any feedback yet. Uh, well, you know, we have not done it. Notably. <laughs> we haven't done any kind of, um, uh, you know, official evaluation at all, but I can say yes, because <laughs> it's packed. It's packed. And people are just, especially in a theater experience we have, where they can go out to a night sky in Countersport, Pennsylvania, in a dark sky park from dusk to dawn, and uh, actually experience uh, the Milky Way, the sky just full of stars and then interpreted through um, three different cultures and the Pleiades star cluster. Mm. So we introduced the Pleiades star cluster and then we interpret it from a Greek perspective, an Ainu Japan perspective and a, a Maori New Zealand perspective. Mm. So different cultures are all telling a story about the same star cluster that people can see around the world and people in the theater are actually getting to experience in Countersport, Pennsylvania. And it is a small theater and we were thinking, you know, maybe three benches and people, it, it's packed. People come out of there like, wow. Um, and you just see them enjoying all of the different uh, amazing photographs. It is primarily a photo show and just can see that this is something that a lot of people just have not experienced. The exhibit itself is very dark. So you already come into a dark space and then these images uh, from around the world just pop out at you. And um, I think that they're just really having a terrific experience in the exhibit. Hmm. How do we convince, I mean, part of the problem here, you know, in the lighting industry and then the larger community, uh, I think people see light pollution as a metaphor rather than something that's actually a real thing that's a, that causes environmental damage. How do we, how do we change that awareness? I think this, this display is important, impo important part of that. But it, do you guys feel the same way as I do that there is... There's this, this feeling that light pollution is not a real kind of pollution, actually. It's just like, we're just saying that to, to get you the idea that maybe, you know, this is not, you know, it's more like a, uh, a light trespass. It's not really pollution. How do we, is there, you know, beyond this, is, do you guys feel that I'm right about that? And if so, can we change it? Is it going to be hard to change? Stephen? Yes. Well, I think it's, it's, it's very much built into our exhibit. So 
there's a wonder component which which uh so there's this there's a wonder component which which is brought out by the photography i think mm -hmm. but then there's there's sections within the exhibit that deal with the consequences of light pollution to birds during the migration period with this being distracted by lights to the apocalypse that's happening with insect populations throughout the world as they're drawn by light but also to aspects of sea life and 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 um and plants uh that, that, that there's consequences of urban light pollution and i think that's there's a very powerful uh display we have of of mounted birds that have been collected from beneath buildings or they've been um, distracted and 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 killed by striking that and and the important aspect I think that come one of the take homes of the exhibit that's very important um, is that this is a problem that can be dealt with and we we have examples of cities mm -hmm. that have have turned off their bright lights or some of their distracting uh, advertising signage during the times of migration you know and and uh, and and also. Um, uh, communities surrounding some of the observatories that, that maybe Kim could speak to that have redirected their lighting uh, so as not to disturb the uh, observation you know potential of the of the telescopes so it's it, it is a problem I mean we you know we want to wow people like like look at these amazing things that are available to us to see but also this is this isn't a this isn't a doom and gloom this is this is a, a set of problems that we can deal with that's such a wonderful um uh, position to take and you know we have it from our perspective over here is that the good news about light pollution is it's largely a solvable problem it, the, the technology exactly. exists it's not a research and development issue um you know you take a look at things like carbon um uh, climate change and i mean that's a really that's we don't know how we're going to do it and um but with you know, darkness restoration would contribute to that problem because we would use a lot less energy. And then on top of that, um, we already have all the technology we need, the, the lighting control systems, the shielded lights, the low Kelvin temperature, everything's already there. Kimberly, tell us, expand on what Stephen was saying, though. He mentioned you when he was talking there, if you could expand a little bit on how what, what some of the cities are doing in, in areas where there are uh, telescopes. Yeah, I, I think, like, as he mentioned, one of the very positive things about this issue is just that the individual can participate and feel like they are making a difference they can in they can participate on a very small local level just within their own home of just turning off the lights mm -hmm. um, and even doing such also just helps reduce energy usage and carbon footprints in general like there's small things that the individual can do immediately but then with just another extra step or two that impact can reverberate as soon as you get to the next level if you're in an apartment building or if you work at a school and you can help change how the school lights their field at night or you can go a step bigger and go to your town council or, or whatever it might be like there are a series of steps that individuals can take or that communities can take in order to combat this and it's particularly being done in some areas around um, observatories for example but else where throughout the world too. Um, there are some wonderful locations in places like Scotland, for example, um, where they have um, literal times of no lights at all. Like they have completely hmm. shut off lights and have found it to be conducive to tourism, which is great, mm -hmm. um, but also just as a way of returning to a more sort of community focused um, lens, right? And so I feel like it's just, 
it just gives me a sense of hope, I think, in general, overall, because it can feel stressful and frustrating with these larger issues of climate change that you can't have any impact. Um, but as an individual, you can have some agency here with light pollution. And I think that's a really wonderful thing. I agree. You know, one of the one of the you know, you, you, you come across these memes on the Internet from sometimes I go on the Internet. I probably shouldn't. But <laughs> I saw this one post um, on a social media platform and it showed North Korea and South Korea. And uh, North Korea was completely dark and South Korea was completely light polluted. The entire half of the peninsula was coated with with light. And this was seen as a symbol of the success of the Western um, socio-capitalist system over communism and we need to invert that right like that needs to change is that actually the sign of intelligent life on earth now should be really um the rest restoration and preservation of night and darkness jill do you have any does your your, your again the lights out recovering our night is there a call to action at the end for people to to tell them really to get involved in the movement there's a call to action throughout the exhibit throughout the exhibit and we use um, essential questions is what we is the way we term it throughout the exhibit. They're questions that don't necessarily have an answer, but get people thinking. How much light is at night is enough? Who gets to decide? Mm. Who needs the dark? Um, just to get people to ponder that. And um, we have that example of North and South Korea uh, on a map in our exhibit. It's a global map that shows. Uh, satellite view of the earth at night and we identify what are these light sources where is this coming from and some of it is really surprising um some of it is is our use of resources um mm. some of it are it, just example incredibly brightly lit roads well we can do something about that mm -hmm. and so in the exhibit we give examples we have success stories we we label that as such as a graphic treatment whether it be for sea turtles in Florida, whether it's the Smithsonian um, taking its own action to you know, light downward and not out into the sky, um, whether it's um, an indigenous community, um, the Kaibab Piot that, Piot that have a dark sky community, they're protecting their, their night skies. Um, I think one of the things I was just given a tour on Saturday and um, People are surprised that there are dark sky, uh, that we're preserving dark skies like we preserve national parks and, mm. and landscapes, or we, we have marine sanctuaries and we're preserving parts of the ocean. They were really interested in, in knowing that there are actually places that we are specifically preserving the night sky, International Dark Sky Association, um, and seeking that out, you know, and knowing that they can go find places where they're going to be able to see uh, a night sky in all its glory. But some of those can simply be in your own backyard, mm -hmm. giving people tips. How do you get out? Get near water. Get up a little higher. Get out in a big open space. And um, giving them examples, very specific examples, like we were talking about of um, what, what light bulb to pick, what kind of light shield. We've got mm. interactives that show people how this glaring light actually is hiding what you might need to see. And as you just bring your light down, mm. you can see exactly what you want, but you can also see the night sky. So I live on a farm and um, I often turn off all the lights in my house and all the outdoor lighting. Um, 
in the evening just to, to take a look at the stars. And even the local light around you, the local light from your home or in your, you know, in your, in, from your house, that if you turn that off, that will contribute to this a lot. But, you know, one of the things is that, you know, Stephen, we're trying to change the lighting industry into the lighting and darkness industry. It, it's taking a lot of work, actually, to, um, you know, convince lighting people to start with darkness instead of starting with light. And, the, you know, there's a lot of barriers. Um, some of them are policy-wise and laws, local laws and bylaws and these types of things. We need to work on that. And, um, you know, I think this Smithsonian exhibit, Stephen, is, is starting to create that kind of awareness in the general population that we need in order to, for this movement to begin to start flowing into our, 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 our policymaking. Um, is there any, has, has any congressmen or women come down and check out the, the, uh, the any politicians been down yet to check it out? Well, you know, th this is a town full of such. And mm -hmm. uh, if not the, the senators and congressmen themselves, perhaps their staffers and, and people. So I'm, I'm not exactly sure on that question, but um, uh, more to the point, I, I, I think, um, if we start with the notion of wonder, if we lure them in, mm. you know, with these spectacular photography, and 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 Jill hasn't mentioned, but we we also had a real um, uh, commitment to try to make this a multi-sensorial experience, you know. So there's mm. a lot of sounds of the night, you know, crickets and frogs and things like that, but also. Um, kind of some very innovative uh, things that our, our, our vision impaired people can participate in well. Um, uh, star maps and things like that that they can touch and, 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 exp and have some clue to the concepts of, of which we're talking about. So we're, we're, we're very pleased with that. Um, but uh, so I, I, you know, I think that's the, you know, the responsibility of the museum, right, um, is to sort of create that intellectual space. And, you know, when we started out, well, before COVID, so it was, you know, four years ago, we started thinking about this and it was a new idea for all of us. Um, you know, what do we have in the museum that can sort of resonate with this issue? Um, but since then, I just think there's been a wealth of, it's an emerging issue, you know, that, that, uh, uh, people, you begin to see editorials in newspapers and, and, and some of the environmental literature, um, is, is focusing on it. And, and, and certainly the astronaut, you know, the astronomy people and, and the amateur, uh, astronomy pho photographic community and what have you, um, are, are, are all been, you know, preaching this for some time now. And so I think it's just, I, I think the Smithsonian is a national uh, pulpit is a good place to uh, get some of these ideas mm -hmm. out and bring it into common discourse. So the, you know, I interviewed Dr. Jesse Barber um, a couple of weeks ago, and he, he talks about sensory pollution and how noise and light pollution are often together um, and, you know, you, you say, well, it's, it's restoring silence, but I think that's the same thing as saying dark skies. It's actually the night is not quiet either. Um, if you allow it to, um, come through, Jill, you're, 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 you're shaking your head. Do you have anything to expand on that? This idea of sensory pollution as being, um, something we want to eliminate at night. Well, I think that one of the things, this is this experience we have with people going out, uh, and we include the sounds, you know, that it isn't quiet, just like it isn't dark per se. 
um, that it's actually, it can be a really bright sky. Um, but it also allows, allows us to share with people that there's a, there's a whole community out there at night and get to get to meet the nightlife. We have one section of the exhibit that says meet the nightlife. And so we've got pictures of the kinds of things that you might see at night, including flowering plants like cactus, um, bats, insects, marine life, mammals, lots and lots and lots of mammals are out or nocturnal. So that there is this, this diurnal cycle and that a lot of things are out at night and um, listen to them. You get to experience them. We found that some people are afraid, you know, mm -hmm. they, 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 they connect mm -hmm. light at night, artificial light at night with safety. Mm -hmm. And that was something we really had to address and, and acknowledge. Right. And so being able to share with people, you can have lighting that's very safe. That is not anywhere near as intrusive as the kind of light you might think you need. And let's, let's get, let's introduce some of these, uh, sounds at, mm. at, at night and, and where are they coming from so that you can begin to feel more comfortable and begin to feel more familiar. Yeah, the safety trap is a tough one um, to overcome because there's, there's evidence on both sides. I mean, there's lots of evidence that more light equals less crime. I'm not saying safety, but there is evidence that and, you know, I argued that maybe there's different kinds of crimes happening with different kinds of lighting, right? Um, but yes, so definitely lighting can be used to create a feeling of safety. Um, if you ask people, you know, uh, you know, in a lawsuit, they're always, they're always going to say you didn't have enough light. I mean, even there was a case where someone was coming through a tunnel and the lights were so bright that um, when they came out of the tunnel, there was an accident. And the person had said they couldn't see when they came out because of the contrast. And the answer, of course, is just more light, right? Not less light, right? And so we have this default in our legal system um, and in our regulations, like even the highway regulations here, if you change the lighting on the highway and there was an accident, there might be a lawsuit against the town and against the highway and authority and all this kind of stuff. So there's lots of work to do, I think, at the, at the policy level and the, and the, and the law level. Um, but there is a sense that there is movement in this direction. But is it only a rural thing? So when you were when you're demonstrating this, Jill, are you only speaking of rural environments, or can we have pleasant darkness in our cities, or is that impossible? No, I think that is something that we really wanted to bring out, and this um, get to, uh, tips we gave people are actually showing people in a, you know, in Central Park, you can go out in Central Park and you can take a telescope and you're going to see planets and you're going to see stars and you're going to be able to get just a glimpse of a night, get near water. You know, you might be near a city, but um, we use an example, it's Fountain Hills, Arizona, where they're a dark sky community now and they are near the water um, preserving this amazing night sky we have pictures of kids out on the mall in Washington, DC on an astronomy night and um, what they can see. Uh, or just an example of in a community, what you can do changing your lighting uh, and you're in the middle of a city and you can see a lot more stars. Mm -hmm. um, we talk about, you know, getting out and just let your eyes adjust a little bit, you know, just let your eyes adjust and start to look and, 
and see in places that you might not have thought to look before. You can probably see a lot more in a suburban backyard than you think. You know, I, I've often thought that the, the loss of our night sky has done serious damage to our psyche. And I, I know it sounds um, crazy, but humans are not a nocturnal species. That doesn't mean we don't go out at night and look at the stars. But there definitely seems to be um, something missing. And what you were talking about, seeing things better, I think we could do that for everything, actually. <laughs> we could stop and think about the things that we're doing and how we're you know, doing things. And hopefully this movement here um, can, can help us. Kimberly, um, tell me a little bit about how you, um, what is sonification of spatial data actually first before I, I, uh, <laughs> before I ask sure. about it? <laughs> um, it's just this idea of translating data into sound, but particularly for immersive environments like virtual reality, sorry, space cat here, um, virtual reality or extended reality of some kind when you have that sort of geospatial, um, data point where you can attach sound to it so that if you're going through some sort of VR, you understand where you are in relation to the data, not just through vision, but also through sound. Um, and we did use sonification techniques in this exhibit as well, because we really wanted to be both immersive and multi-sensory and also very accessible and inclusive. Um, so we actually took the Bortle scale, for example, which is this scale that helps you kind of grade the amount of light pollution um, in your area or across areas and doing a very simplified version of the Boral scale to reduce it just to a few um, chunks. What we did was apply sound to that data so that as you're experiencing it, you'll hear more like white noise and um, stuff, right? In these noisier, more light polluted areas and versus when you're in a more dark sky area, you'll just hear the, the twinkle, the sort of natural twinkle, if you will, of those stars. So long answer to your short question, but that's what sonification is. <laughs> and so, and this is obviously in the exhibit. Um, how do you um, decide or how do you like, it's, it almost sounds like you're like a science experience designer or something. Um, how do you go sure. about, yeah. yeah. How do you go about deciding what you're going to do and what sounds you're going to use? Well, it's a mathematical mapping from the data so that it is highly representative of the data that we have, but we absolutely have subjectivity in the choices of what we're applying to that data mapping. And in this case, um, we're working with some wonderful colleagues at System Sounds that are also sound engineers and musicians to make sure that the sounds are appropriate for the data, authentic to the data, but still um, express the data in a way that is you know, aesthetic auditorily wise. Um, and it's really important to pay attention to that because particularly when you're working with and for blind and low vision communities, you want to make sure that the data translation, if you will, from sight to sound is something that will make sense for their community, mm. is something that will help create the mental map of that data. So it's not just, um, you know, translating something into sound to make it sound pretty so it sounds catchy and has a good tune. It's about making sure there's a distinction between those sounds so that as you can create a mental map, you're understanding what pieces of that data you're sort of creating with. And so, yeah, it's this whole process of essentially taking information and mapping into another experience that we can have. Tell me about the data. Where do you, where does the data come from and, and what is it? Exactly. What is it that you're 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 sonifi sonifying? <laughs> well, so in the exhibit, we were sonifying the essential like images, if you will, that exemplify that part of the Bortle scale. So the dark sky mm. was really like the image pictured behind you. Lots of stars, nice strong band of the Milky Way, all of the 
pockets of brightness and darkness that that milky band contain. And then of course, sliding over to the other side in a more urban, you know, city environment, just mm. bright sort of light fog that's canvassing the sky and just a couple bright points of light, like you might expect in a very light polluted area. And so it's taking that image and it's mathematically mapping the pixels in that image into the auditory experience. What does um, light so pollution sound like? To get that process. Does... Well, it sounds like noise, like white noise, <laughs> if you will, and mm -hmm. the lack of the beauty of the heavens, mm -hmm. right? So it takes you, instead of having a little mini symphony of sound with all the twinkling gorgeousness that is our Milky Way and stars around it, instead it's more like a TV that's been partially disconnected and no longer, you mm -hmm. know, plays anything that's all that exciting. Um, so yeah, it's just a... A different way to experience it. What an emotional roller coaster, Stephen. What what did um what did you add to the exhibit from the archaeological perspective or the anthropological perspective, whichever one? Yes, one of the uh, one of the, the driving factors of the exhibit was trying to include things from the natural museums, the natural history museums collections, and so we took a quick dive into the anthropology holdings because we wanted to broaden out the perspective of the night sky, and and uh, in addition, uh, we, we we were cognizant of trying to get imagery uh, from all over the world, so we do, from the poles and from all the continents of the world, but we also wanted to um, have some objects from our anthropology collections that resonate with stories about the night sky and 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 so we had some uh lovely yupik masks from alaska that was collected in the 1880s that depicted um uh yupik uh, 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 uh spiritual deities uh, mm. that 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 lived in the in the sky uh stars and moons and and their associates uh also we have a wonderful uh winter uh, count uh, calendar, uh, which was a Plains Indian no notational device where they would uh, inscribe an, an event from each year that would sort of become a visual almanac in which uh, people could uh, uh, tell stories about the passing of time. And some of the specific events of specific years, like uh, unusually uh, um, spectacular meteorite shower that was mm. observed throughout most of the northern hemisphere was recorded and then eclipses and things like that um but um to our delight w when when we have these opportunities at the museum and we're always cognizant of the fact that we do have these wonderful treasures from indigenous communities from around the world mm. but it's always important for us to stress that m many of these communities are are still ongoing you know people are are, are still sure. uh, active today and, and so we use an opportunity like this um to sort of try to reach out to some contemporary artisans contemporary community representatives to maybe produce artwork that's inspired by the night sky and in this case we were extremely lucky because there's a wonderful Gwich'in woman from the northwest territories named margaret nansen who does um, a beadwork. She's a, a traditional seamstress and, and, and beadworker, but she has been so inspired by both visions 
that a photograph she saw from taken from the Hubble Space Scope uh, telescope, but also from her own experiences walking out from her community under the night sky to produce these extraordinary beaded panels, um, which which we have. Um, it, it, one of which we have in the exhibit. So, uh, and to me, it's quite a delight because it, it sparkles and catches wow. the light uh, as you walk through the exhibit, anyway, much like the night sky does as well. So it, it, it is an opportunity to, to share with the audience that um, people's experiences vary, but also it is a common factor around the world. And, and we have historical photographs going back to to um, the the Lascaux cave caverns and some of the Paleolithic uh, uh, caves uh, in France, you know, where there are symbols painted on the cave walls mm. that many people have interpreted as as constellations and aspects of the night sky. So, well, archaeology, and and again, you know, not to tell you about your own discipline, <laughs> but I mean, you rarely hear something in archaeology that's not oriented to the to some star system or some sunset or sunrise or some sort of natural phenomenon and the, and, and the constellations continually continually pop up um in that and so as a you know if we, you know we don't look at ourselves as a species so much you know but if if we did i i think we would see that in, in the modern world in our world now we're missing something and we're missing that connection to the universe Absolutely. And and we explore that theme a little bit, you know, with a little bit of the history of astronomy, which segues right into Kim's work um, with with radio astronomy and 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 the, you know, I, I, Kim brings to the exhibit deep time, you know, so, you know, I, I may be mired in the recent 10,000 years of human uh, activities, but but Kim's insights uh, just to the profound understanding of what is existence you know it's like what is it that that uh, we're part of in the in in this universal uh, vision and and an appreciation or, or or a way of accessing that kind of experience and knowledge is threatened by light pollution you know whenever we used to start off the show by by um in the old days when we first started the, this podcast by asking people to give us an, a time when they experienced the awe of the night sky. And, you know, several times, um, you know, it sounded as if they were on psychedelic drugs. I mean, I'm not kidding you. Um, you know, there was, you know, some people would describe it uh, in the same, like if you just took out, you know, constellations or whatever and put in you know psilocybin it might be the same thing kimberly uh we want to wrap this up so we're going to give you the second last word and then we're going to go over to jill kimberly final thoughts for the restoring darkness listeners yeah i mean so i work in astronomy and i do kind of have this front row seat and i want everybody to participate in that with me but you know part of it is i grew up in a more rural part of my state and had access to an incredible part of the night sky and would dream about it like such the such so, so much so that my parents actually got me a stellarium so I could like have the stars on my bedroom ceiling as I fell asleep. Mm. Um, so to have gone through from that to today working on this exhibit with Jill and Stephen, the whole crew, um, working with experts across the Smithsonian and across really the world to kind of piece together the story to tell. Um, it's just been such a joy because I really do hope that people can take away from this that. We need the night sky, not just for ourselves as selfish humans, but also as mm. part 
uh, members of a planet that, you know, we're sharing this planet with other um, species, creatures, ecosystems, and it's our responsibility to make sure we do what we can in order to support the others on the planet with us. So, yeah, I mean, the night sky might belong to us or to all of us or to no one, but we really do have a responsibility to make sure that we're not crowding it out. Jill, it's a temporary exhibit, Lights Out, Recovering Our Night Sky. Tell me how long it's going for, and yeah, tell me a little bit for final thoughts here for the listeners. So the exhibit's going to be at our museum uh, through December 2025, and then Smithsonian Institution Traveling Exhibits is going to make a smaller footprint of it and is going to travel it for probably, I don't know, five, eight years around wow. certainly the United States in smaller venues. Um, but so it will live on um, and uh, maybe be in, you know, somebody's backyard, somebody's community. And um, I think the, the to sort of wrap it up, when we first went out and asked visitors about their night sky, we found these two different groups, those that had experienced it like you were describing. Mm -hmm. They could tell you in detail what they saw. And in and for those that had only seen it a couple times, um, it was so memorable, it was just, you know, implanted in there and they could just describe it in great detail. Then we we had this other group that really hadn't seen it or hadn't thought about it, or maybe was afraid to go out. And so those are our two target groups, those that are passionate about it because they've seen it, those that don't really know a lot about it because they haven't really been outside. And so what we hope is our exhibit is going to inspire both of those groups mm. to do something, go out and find that night sky, and then realize there are really simple things I can do in my backyard, in my community, in my neighborhood um, to preserve, preserve uh, night sky for, for future generations. It's a simple, um, solvable problem. You know what? I'm also hoping that the, that, this issue joins the general environmental movement, you know, plastics in the ocean, carbon emissions, and these kinds of things. And that those, those environmentalists, if they're listening, embrace this. This is a solvable one. We can get this done and it will contribute to that. It'll definitely use less energy. Um, and so, yeah. And, and, you know, guys, I'm going to put the uh, link to the uh, exhibit on the restoringdarkness.com website. So if you, if you're looking for that, you can go there. Um, and for now, I'm going to say thank you to Jill, Stephen, and Kimberly for joining me today on the Restoring Darkness podcast. Great. And thank you very much thank for having you. us. Thank you. All right. Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.